unless you tell Mickey Mallory Knox did it, all right? Say it! Mickey and Mallory Knox did it. Mickey and Mallory Knox. I love you, Mickey. Love you, Mallory. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what When We Were Young is about. When We Were Young is about these three motherfuckers who won't shut the fuck up about stuff they used to like decades ago, and they just ramble on for hours and hours, not giving a fuck about how much their listeners can take. It's the same bullshit every episode. This is homophobic. This Disney cartoon is about rape. Blah, 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 blah. Then one day, they finally bring up this Tarantino motherfucker, and they finally feel something. They feel something they haven't felt in forever. It's the same thing they felt growing up, experiencing something for the very first time, even though they don't know that his movies are pretty much just referencing movies that came out before they were even born. It gives them the feeling of being a child, hence when we were young. Is that our latest review? <laughs> yeah, we usually save those for later in the episode, don't we? Honestly, not the meanest review we've gotten. <laughs> Points were made, I, I have to admit. <laughs> I can't deny that there is some truth ringing out here. That one sounds like it's at least two stars. <laughs> I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to be the most twisted, depraved shitfuck it has ever been your displeasure to lay your goddamn eyes on. I'm Seth, the host most likely to be lost in a world of ghosts. And I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to get higher ratings than John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy, but not Charles Manson. Keep reaching for the stars, Chris. It's hard to beat the king. (laughs) In these back-to-back episodes, we'll be taking a deep dive back to the mid-90s, focused on the singular point where Hollywood took a sharp left turn from your standard narrative and our average movie protagonists became foul-mouthed, murdering, pop-culture-obsessed criminals. Yes, we are headed back to the emergence of Quentin Tarantino, specifically the year 1994, when he was responsible for about 90% of the blood and adult language heard in cinemas that year with his movies Natural Born Killers and Pulp Fiction. In this episode, we'll be focusing on Natural Born Killers, the movie Tarantino wrote and later disowned, and we'll get to that. But first... Jumping back in the DeLorean a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical and radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fantasy or will it be fun? A decades later will it still hold up? This is when we were young When we were young So guys, did you like my Tarantino impression? (laughs) It was tremendous. It was tremendous. And you held it so tightly. Honestly, I have to commend you, Becky. I felt like he was in the room. (laughs) I I was reflexively hiding my feet as you were saying it. Yes, I didn't stare at your feet and I didn't say the N-word. I was waiting for I was like, really, it's not Tarantino without at least 37 (laughs) N-words per minute, but it definitely felt of a piece with him and with our podcast. It was a beautiful melding of two pop culture properties that now shall meet. (laughs) Well, uh, we are a hundred and something episodes in and I feel like it's strange we haven't gotten to any Tarantino yet. 
considering I would say he is a very large part of our cinematic language when we were growing up. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's there's a few. Like, Scorsese is another one that we haven't gotten to. But yeah, Tarantino came about in the 90s, you know? And I think if you were to name a very small handful of people who, like, defined cinema in the 90s, you would put Tarantino in there, probably. So, yeah, it is kind of strange. I guess maybe it's just that we had to, like, save it for the right moment. I don't know. It is kind of funny to me that we're, like, five years in and change and haven't gotten to him yet. But there were so many Billboard number one hits to cover first. (laughs) We we got to Hanson early, and we we saved Tarantino a little later. Let's learn about Tarantino. Quentin Jerome Tarantino was born in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 27, 1963. He was named after the character Quint Asper, played by Burt Reynolds on Gunsmoke. It was meant to be. (laughs) That's the most Quentin Tarantino thing I've ever fucking heard. Oh, just wait for it. (laughs) Oh my god. When he was three, his mother moved herself and Quentin back to her hometown of Los Angeles. Tarantino grew up in the LA suburb of Torrance. His mother let him watch whatever he wanted, including lots of age-inappropriate movies at the time like Deliverance and Carnal Knowledge. That's the most Quentin Tarantino thing I've ever fucking heard. At 14, he wrote his first script. It was titled Captain Peach Fuzz and the Anchovy Bandit. That's the most Quentin Tarantino thing I've ever fucking heard. It was based on Smokey and the Bandit. That's the most Quentin Tarantino thing I've ever fucking heard. When he was 15, he was caught shoplifting Elmore Leonard's novel, The Switch. Seth, you want to say that this is the most tarantino yeah. thing? We'll just cut Seth no. saying that in after every line. I'm not saying it again. We're just copy-pasting it. <laughs> His mother grounded him, only allowing him to leave to attend rehearsals at the Torrance Community Theater. He dropped out of high school at 15 and worked as an usher at an adult movie theater. He eventually found work as a clerk at a video rental store in Manhattan Beach and worked there for five years. Wait, so you can, like, not go into an adult video (laughs) store at the, like, below the age of 18, but you can work in one? Chris, I worked in one at 16. I worked at a mom and pop video rental store and there was an adult movie section and I put the movies back in that section at 16. Did you squeegee them off or was that someone else's job? I don't know. I've only worked in two weeks. There's a statute of limitations on that whatever form of child abuse that is. Yeah, I was really happy to get that job because you know why? Because Tarantino was like my idol. He worked in a video rental store. It's like hot on his footsteps. (laughs) In 1986, he got his first Hollywood job working with future collaborator Roger Avery as a PA on Dolph Lundgren's exercise video, Maximum Potential. The intensity of modern life, the constant flow of information, personal relationships, career pressures, making it, being somebody, overachieving to live the high technology lifestyle. It's your life and you can take control of it. It's up amazing in 1987 tarantino co-wrote co-starred and directed his first film a 30 minute black and white short or maybe it just was never finished i'm not sure if it was actually 30 minutes or (laughs) meant to be 30 minutes it was a short called my best friend's birthday its screenplay later formed the basis for true romance which would be his first produced screenplay have you guys ever seen true romance yeah i've seen it a couple times the first time i saw it was in film school and i've rewatched it maybe once or twice since then i saw it once a while ago and then i have recently seen it in the last week or so. I think that I watched True Romance with you in, I think so in too. college. I did not like it. And I couldn't put my finger on exactly why because I was such a big Tarantino fan, but I was like, I don't like this. Never watched it again until recently when I watched half of it and I didn't like it still. <laughs> 
It, hmm. uh, it's really outdated. Like, even just the first scene is Christian Slater being, like, really homophobic, but also, like, misogynistic. And, like, it just does not work. In Jailhouse Rock, he was everything Rockabilly's about. No, I mean, he is Rockabilly. Mean, surly, nasty, rude. In that movie, he couldn't give a fuck about nothing. Just rocking and rolling, living fast, dying young, leaving a good-looking corpse, you know? I watched that hillbilly and I want to be him so bad. Males look good. <laughs> yeah, I ain't no fag, but Elvis, he was pretty good. The most women, you know, most women. You know, I always said, if I had to fuck a guy, you know, I mean, had to. If my life depended on it, I'd fuck Elvis. <laughs> Yeah, in the opening scene, I think he's, like, hitting on some other woman, a blonde woman, who's not Patricia Arquette. And she's like, oh, I don't like kung fu movies. I was like, this woman's out of here. Like, this is not the love interest of a Tarantino movie. (laughs) But also, he's like, if I had to gun to head sleep with a man, and he's, like, talking about how gross that would be, but he said it would be Elvis. I was just like, this, just this whole thing does not hold up over time, this conversation. Honestly, the the most abiding sense I got every time I watched it was like, this is a movie that's dated itself, like, even for Tarantino. Yeah, and Gary Oldman is, like, really, like... He has a- dreads. <laughs> I'm like, is he supposed to be a black character? Like, an offensively written black character? Like, it's really weird. Not his finest moment, anybody's. Actually, like, I meant Gary Oldman, but, like... You have a seat, boy. You have your sofa egg roll. We got everything here from a little eye Joe to damn if I know. No thanks. <laughs> no thanks? What that mean? Hmm? I think you're too scared of eating. Let's see. We're sitting down here, ready to negotiate. <laughs> You've already given up your shit. I'm still a mystery to you. But I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. See, if I ask if you want some dinner, and you grab the egg roll and start to try down. I said to myself, this motherfucker, he's carrying on like he ain't got a care in the world. And who knows? Maybe he don't. Well, it was directed by Tony Scott, who, I mean, has done some good movies. Like, he did Top Gun, right? And has done so many, like, 80s movies that are super stylized, much more style over substance. And does not pair well, I don't think, with Tarantino, because Tarantino, I don't know if I would say is exactly style over substance, but there's a lot of style there, but they're, they're not the same style. And so it's really difficult to reconcile those two things. And... Like, this was his first screenplay, right? It really has a trifecta of racism, misogyny, and homophobia in it. You will find traces of those things, like, in other Tarantino movies, but... Or more than (laughs) Tarantino, maybe big blasts of them as well. But it felt like he had not learned any of the lessons from having made a movie, obviously, because this was the first one that was produced. And it's just... 
it's really him, like, without any filter, like, unadulterated, like, trying so hard to be cool that it really is kind of, like, like, it, it, <laughs> it honestly makes the rest of his movies look worse, I think, to see that this was kind of an origin to me. I mean, they look better by comparison, but just, like, to see that, like, his kind of natural, like, first instinct was to just go at this. Like, there's a monologue to Christopher Walken said by Dennis Hopper, and it's talking about Sicilians being descended from Black people. That is not the word that is used. <laughs> I mean, it, it's very reminiscent of like later Tarantino dialogue, but it's just so like, I don't know, the whole thing kind of made my skin crawl. And it's like what we were talking about with the Mannequin movie is it just felt like a screenwriter fantasy. Like Christian Slater, based, I think he was a screenwriter in like the first draft of this yes, movie. He was writing Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Oh, really? In, in the script in the movie. That, oh, yeah. wow. Okay. That absolutely checks out. <laughs> like Patricia Arquette comes in and she's like this manic pixie dream girl who mm-hmm. like is just like the fantasy of what that kind of guy would like. And her name and, is Alabama. Mm-hmm. And she's a <laughs> prostitute, but this is her like third night but on the job. She's not a real prostitute. Yeah, and, and she gives it all up for him. And then for some reason he steals Gary Oldman's cocaine and goes on the run and it's just like, you caused all these problems. Like, <laughs> I don't feel sorry for you. Like, don't steal a bunch of drugs. Yeah, can't say that over time it has endeared itself to me at all. Also in 1987, he got an acting gig as an Elvis impersonator on an episode of The Golden Girls. Either I mixed the Elvis list with the wedding list or everyone in Max's family appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. (laughs) Who cares already? Let's just do it! He's in a blink and you miss it part. I actually thought it would be dialogue, like some sort of like, you know, he'd have a few lines. No, there's like 12 Elvis impersonators during the scene and he's just one of them. But part of his pay and residuals for that gig helped finance his first film, Reservoir Dogs, which premiered at Sundance Film Festival in 1992, and it was an instant hit with audiences. Have you guys seen Reservoir Dogs ever or recently? I think it was the first Tarantino movie I saw, and I did also rewatch it a week ago. I think I first saw Reservoir Dogs at USC as well. Or maybe it was like at one of the midnight screenings at the little dollar theater right across the street from there. Um, I know that I've seen it in theaters more so than anywhere else, which is Hmm. weird for a movie that I had no interest in when it came out or any of that. I think I've seen it three times in theaters and two or three times outside of that. Yeah, well, I watched it recently after watching it my whole life over and over. (laughs) (laughs) I love this movie still. It's such a fresh breath of air. I love how you don't see the heist. And I think this was really showing how Tarantino was going to play with form throughout his career. It's a genre movie, but the big thing in in the genre that you usually see, which is the heist, you don't see it at all. It's all getting ready. Not even all of the getting ready, more more like we're just meeting and the aftermath. And I love that. And I still think after all this time that it really holds up as a really inventive film. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he he basically did this, I think, with all of his scripts. Like, True Ma- Romance was originally also not in order. And then this movie, you know, Pulp Fiction is the one that gets a lot of credit for being 
super disjointed in time, but this one is equally so, maybe even more so, because you basically are introduced to these characters whose names you don't initially know, and they're all named after colors, and then, like, one by one, you sort of flash back to how they got involved in this. But the first scene is a bunch of pop culture references (laughs) in a diner, which is a super familiar trope for anyone who's seen other Tarantino movies. But yeah, I think that this movie, because it's so contained, and he wrote it purposefully because like, he wanted to direct True Romance himself and Natural Born Killers himself and couldn't get those made because they were higher budgeted. So he really deliberately like set this in mostly around one location. And I think that working in those constraints really allows him to show off, you know, his creativity and fill it with like really interesting dialogue and very memorable characters. So I also almost wish that he was more restrained in other movies as well, because I actually think he does really well when he's constrained, which is something I don't think he's been constrained in a really long time. Of all, like, the auteurs, he can, in an essence, probably make whatever film he wants to. Yeah, I, I, Chris, I especially really agree with what you just said. This movie has always felt to me like a really good stage play. I can see that. Again, because it's nearly all in one location. And I mean, I kind of rewatched most of it again today. And uh, especially then, it just really got through to me. Like, I, I really do think, like, this and Hateful Eight, I think, would make great stage plays. I remember I saw Hateful Eight with you. I remember um, thinking, wow, this is very similar to Reservoir Dogs because it's all Absolutely. taking place in like one area. I think it's inarguably a much stronger piece of writing and a stronger movie than like True Romance. I also don't feel like one lick of sympathy for any single character in this movie. I want nearly all of them to die, especially <laughs> Steve Buscemi. Well, you're in luck. <laughs> he hates service workers. Right, exactly. <laughs> But it feels like there is an extent to which I think this movie especially just feels like one monologue waiting for the next monologue in a way that can make it feel a bit less than the sum of its parts. At the same time, Chris, like I I think the fact that it is so self-contained makes that work much better than I think it otherwise could have if it were stretched across a larger span of time or if the story were taking on like bigger or longer term stakes than the very, very small scale story that it is because I don't really I don't get much of a feeling of these people living all that much beyond the span of the pages of this script or beyond the running time of this movie and I think it goes to something I felt a long time about Tarantino where like he's Chris like you said earlier he's formalistic like he's a very formalistic filmmaker and there's an element of that where like when it's working I, I don't th- I don't know of any other filmmaker who does that better, but also there is a thinness to that. I wouldn't call it shallow or superficial, but it lacks a depth that I think a lot of other great filmmakers who Tarantino is always put on a par with, that other filmmakers and other writer-directors have that substance, and he just doesn't. And it's clearly not what he aims to make in his movies. Yeah, I actually did like several of the characters here. Maybe, like, I think the actors do a lot here. Like, Harvey Keitel, Steve Buscemi, and... Tim Roth. Tim Roth. All three of them are really endearing. I I agree with that. To the extent that these kinds of characters can be endearing. What was telling them your name when you weren't supposed to? Yes. We had just gotten away from the cops. He just got shot. It was my fault he got shot. He's a fucking bloody mess. 
He's screaming. I swear to God, I thought he was going to die right then and there. I'm trying to comfort him. Telling him not to worry, everything's going to be okay, I'm going to take care of him. And he asked me what my name was. I mean, the man was dying in my arms. What the fuck was I supposed to do? Tell him I'm sorry? I can't give out that fucking information. It's against the rules. I don't trust you enough. Or maybe I should have, but I couldn't. I fuck know. you and fuck Joe. Yeah, I'm sure it was a very beautiful scene between you. Don't fucking patronize me. question for you. Do they have a sheet on you where you're from? Yeah. Well, that's that then, man. But I mean, Jesus Christ, I was worried about mugshot possibilities as it was. Now he knows, hey, you name B, what you look like, C, where you're from, and D, what your specialty is. They're not going to have to show him a hell of a lot of pictures for him to pick you out. I actually was surprisingly into the characters in this movie in a way that I'm not in every one of the movies that we're going to talk about related to Tarantino. I mean, this is kind of his thing, but he obviously does glorify criminals, which he's not the first filmmaker to do that by any means. I mean, that's basically been done, you know, since the beginning of film history. But I mean, his criminal characters are much cooler and smarter than real criminals would be. Um, these are probably not people that you'd actually want to sit down and have a meal with in real life, like people who are going to be robbing banks and stuff like that. And but, cutting ears. <laughs> yeah. But in this movie, like you're perfectly content to let them riff about pop culture and, and Madonna when they... I'm not sure these guys would really be having a discussion about Madonna, but... Well, that's why I... I really do appreciate his tendency to show people who do definitely bad things, but they're well-rounded. They're never just, like, talking about the heist and hitting their lady. And, you know, like, they talk about Madonna. (laughs) They talk about the nature of tipping. They talk about things that are going on in the world. They talk about TV pilots. They, you know, like, I feel like that makes them real people. And I think that in this world, there's certain types of bad people. There's bad people who rob and murder on occasion and then the, but, Just on occasion. but like even mr white in this movie is saying like mr blonde's a psychopath like i don't want to work with that guy he's not a professional and that's coming from a guy who will kill people he will kill cops or if somebody's standing in his way but he's not going to go out of his way to just torture people and i find that really fascinating and it is something that you'll see throughout tarantino's movies where there's flawed very flawed people but then there's even worse people Well, yeah, I mean, you say they're real people, and I get what you mean, but I think it makes them relatable people in a way that these people probably shouldn't actually be as relatable as they are. Like, he basically makes everyone sound like a USC film student or or (laughs) someone who works at a video store. Yeah. Which is what he is. Exactly. So they're really all him, and especially that's true, I think, in some of these earlier films. I mean, we just talked about Christian Slater and True Romance is literally him. And I mean, one of these guys is literally him. He plays one of the the bad guys. I gotta say, I like, and it won't happen in lots of other Tarantino movies, but a fine cameo. Very small. Yeah. (laughs) Let me tell you what Like a Virgin's about. It's all about this coot who's a regular fuck machine. I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. Then one day she meets this John Holmes motherfucker and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. All right, now she's getting a serious dick action. And she's feeling something she ain't felt since forever. Pain. Pain. Chew, Toby, chew. It hurts. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt her. 
You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding a fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. He's he got, he's Mr. Got a good, Brown? Is Mr. That? Brown, because isn't that a little too close to Mr. Shit? Like, he's got a, a, a line in there, and I'm like, good. You you, came, you kept it subdued for your game. But I think he learned the wrong lesson. He was like, oh, if I can do this, I can clearly handle a much larger part of <laughs> right. my films. Uh, we'll get there. Yeah, so, I mean, that can be fun, and, and I like it in this movie well enough, because this movie is really contained, and it feels like a, a stylized thing. Like, because it jumps back and forth in time so much, like, I never really take this movie that seriously. Like, it's it's mostly just a fun locked room kind of film. But even like this early on, I mean, this film references a lot of classic films. Rafifi, The Killing, The Taking of Pelham 123 is where he got like the idea of like Mr. Color Names. Mm. So, I mean, he's definitely like, you know, referencing a lot of stuff here. Picking up briefly, Chris, on a point you made just a bit ago, Becky, I think a lot of the kind of unnaturalness of Tarantino's dialogue um, is sold by the quality of the actors that he's picking for this. Because, like, mm-hmm. I totally agree, Chris, that Steve Buscemi's performance, Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth, anchor this movie in a way that it would be free-floating, I think, with any other actors, really. Like, at least two out of those three are kind of a part of Tarantino's acting ensemble in a couple different movies. But I think in this especially, they make it what it is. And, and I do think there's a kind of Sorkin-esque quality to Tarantino's dialogue, at least in these earlier scripts where it's very clear that a lot of this is just coming out of one person's head and it sounds like one person, but it's really grounded by the performances of the actors and not so much grounded by anything in the writing. That makes me really want to see the Reservoir Dogs like walking and talking through the West Wing, like just like going around and around. <laughs> I mean, I have to just disagree with you, Seth, just because I love the writing, especially of this movie. I credit Tarantino cast great people, but I love his clever dialogue, but the actors perform it so naturally that I don't feel like they're just like, you know, throwing Junoisms, if you know what I mean? Like, like just like, here's a clever line, here's a clever line. Like, I that's clearly not something I'm thinking of right now. Like, I feel no, like I, I agree. So and, and I'm not, it, that's not to say that, like, I think the dialogue is shit in this. Like, I, I just do think it is clearly an earlier script of his. I think that's a thing that he kind of grew past very soon after this movie. Yeah, he gets a lot of credit for, like, being a great writer, which he is in a lot of ways, you know, like, obviously his dialogue is very distinct and very memorable. But I think we also do need to credit him with, like, great casting, because, I mean, obviously, a lot of the people in his film, some of them he kind of discovered or gave a comeback to others, you know, are just, like, great stars that he cast but there's rarely a bad performance i i don't even know if i can think of a single bad performance in a tarantino movie and with dialogue that's this hard to perform as i'm sure this must be there's a lot of monologues and a lot of rambling non sequiturs like you have to be really on to perform this kind of dialogue and i've seen a lot of like other indies with like clever dialogue but when the acting is just not there or that maybe the director doesn't know how to direct the actor to give the performance that he wants like it really can fall flat So good on him for casting these people and being able to direct them to like actually deliver this stuff like in a convincing way. It's your fucking fault we're in this trouble. What's this guy's problem? What's my problem? Yeah, I got a fucking problem. I got a big fucking problem. With any trick you have a madman almost gets me shot. What the fuck are you talking about? That fucking shooting! 
Freak's great! In the store, remember? Oh, fuck them. They set off the alarm. They deserve what they got. You almost killed me! Asshole! If I know what kind of guy you were, I never would have agreed to work with you. <clears throat> are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? What was that? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? Oh, Christ. Hey, look, you two assholes. Calm the fuck down. Hey, come on. Tarantino's first paid writing gig was From Dusk Till Dawn, directed by Robert Rodriguez. Wow. Who he later did Grindhouse with. His first option screenplay was True Romance, which was made by Tony Scott, and his second was Natural Born Killers, which was eventually optioned by Oliver Stone. Tarantino had first sold an option for Natural Born Killers to producers Jane Hampshire and Don Murphy for $10,000 after he tried and failed to direct it himself for $500,000. With the money, Tarantino bought a 1964 Chevelle Malibu, which is the same car John Travolta drives in Pulp Fiction. And by same car, I mean literally the same car. It's his car. Hampshire and Murphy sold the screenplay to Warner Brothers, who then tapped Oliver Stone to direct. At this point Tap. in his career... Tap. Hey, Oliver, would you like to direct this? Hey, Oliver! <laughs> Tapped is a verb. <laughs> okay, Prexy. At this point in his career, Oliver Stone had made several high-profile movies, including Wall Street, Born on the Fourth of July, JFK, and The Doors. Stone, with two others, rewrote Tarantino's script, keeping much of the dialogue but changing the focus of the film from journalist Wayne Gale to Mickey and Mallory. The script was revised so drastically that Tarantino was credited for the story only. In fact, he wanted the story credit and not the screenplay credit because he has said of the movie, I hated that fucking movie. If you like my stuff, don't watch that movie. Wow. Did not know that. As the project developed, incidents like OJ, the Menendez brothers, Tanya Harding, Rodney King took place and took over TV airways. Stone felt that the media was heavily involved in the outcome of all these cases and that the media in general marketed violence and suffering just for ratings. So he changed the tone of the film from an action movie to a quote unquote vicious, cold hearted farce focused on the media. During this time, while he was making the movie, Stone's marriage was falling apart, so he felt pretty angry and pretty sad, and that kind of went into the movie as well. Stone cast Woody Harrelson as Mickey. Woody Harrelson was known at the time mostly for being Woody on Cheers, a very lovable, affable, uh, affable, dim-witted country boy. Yeah. Um, who moves to Boston and works at the bar. Um, He stated that Woody Harrelson had that American trashy look. There's something about Woody that evokes Kentucky or white trash. (laughs) I mean, based on his subsequent casting, yes. (laughs) He cast Juliet Lewis as Mallory. Of Juliet, he said, she has malice in her eyes. She's got adorable eyes, but they jump and they gleam. I just felt they were both right. They didn't feel like they were upper class people. So as I said, Tarantino is not a fan of Natural Born Killers. He claimed to hate the final version of the film up until he met Johnny Cash in an elevator once. Johnny Cash told Tarantino that both he and his wife, June Carter Cash, were fans of his, and they especially liked that movie. What? (laughs) Tarantino felt also okay with the producers when they let him publish his original screenplay so people, like Becky, could see the movie he originally intended. (laughs) I own that script. Awesome. (laughs) Let's uh, learn about Natural Born Killers. It was released August 26, 1994, directed by Oliver Stone, written by Oliver Stone, Richard Ratowski, and David Veloz. And not Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) 
I mean, if you read the original screenplay, he for sure could have gotten screenplay yeah, credit. Yeah. Okay. Like, like, for sure. But he didn't want it. <laughs> so he got story. It stars Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., Tom Sizemore, Tommy Lee Jones, and Rodney Dangerfield. And Edie McClurg. That's yeah. the mom. The mom. Oh, I know who she is, and I didn't know her name, yeah, so yeah. thank you, Seth. The budget was $34 million, and the box office was $110 million. Stone had to cut four minutes of footage out of the movie to get an R rating instead of an NC-17 at the time. The director's cut now exists on Blu-ray with the restored four minutes. And honestly, I think I could take a guess at what those four minutes are, but it's not like you see like a close-up of a dick or something. Like. So I ended up re-watching it a couple times, and the second time I rewatched it, it was the director's cut. A couple sequences, like with Rodney Dangerfield, go on maybe a bit longer, but it honestly does not feel any more or less graphic or any of that. Yeah, I think it's the scene where they have a hostage in the hotel room, and he's like threatening basically to rape her. I don't, I don't remember seeing anything in that that wasn't in the okay. original yeah, cut. Yeah, I might though. be wrong. It I don't know surprising. if I've ever not seen the director's cut version, so... I saw the one that was not a director's cut. They were just puppies. They were playing with deer in a meadow. Like, yeah. You saw Marley and me. Oh, damn it. <laughs> not Mickey and Mallory. <laughs> the film was banned completely upon release in Ireland. <laughs> okay, Irish. We see your game here. Senator Bob Dole publicly denounced the film for its promotion of violence, even though he later admitted he hadn't seen the film. That was one of the biggest reasons I ever heard about Natural Born Killers. For Bob Dole? Yes. (laughs) I followed Bob Dole very closely. No, just in the broader political scene and on, like, TV news, Natural Born Killers was a very controversial kind of hot-button topic. He probably gave this movie more money than, like, the actual marketing budget did. Because (laughs) he was promoting it, like, crazy. Like, obviously not intentionally, but saying, like, this is so sick and violent. Like, that's exactly what appealed to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Like, it's it's a thing that we could even, like, do a whole other episode about, like, the kind of moral panics in media in the 90s. We're not doing a Bob Dole episode (laughs) now. (laughs) Damn it. Gotta scratch that off my list. Ross Perot, maybe. Natural Born Killers was on several best of and worst of year-end lists. <laughs> it has a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes currently. There seem to be more detractors than fans. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said, For all its surface passions, Natural Born Killers never digs deep enough to touch the madness of such events or even to send them up in any surprising way. Mr. Stone's vision is impassioned, alarming, visually inventive, characteristically empowering, but it's no match for the awful truth. Don't stop now, darling. I'm just getting started. Hey, I bet she's sweet on you. Are you flirting with me? Maybe. You want to do something, Do you? So, what is your history with Natural Born Killers? I definitely remember seeing Natural Born Killers at USC. And this one, I remember being shown as part of some kind of one of the media studies, critical studies classes I took. I don't remember if it was one that we had to write an essay about, but I'm thinking it was. I don't know like how deep our class actually went into it, but it feels kind of like one of those movies you'd write an essay about, about like, what does this say about the media and about <laughs> America? Um, and and yeah, college me would have been all over that kind of essay. <laughs> um, 
And yeah, I remembered liking it, very much getting it. (laughs) There was nothing about it that I didn't get the first time I watched it. It's not a movie that I've revisited a whole lot. You know, it's not a movie that, like, became one of my favorites ever. I really do enjoy Oliver Stone, but I don't see this as being one of his strongest movies, necessarily. And even though I'm a big Tarantino fan, I I didn't know that he had kind of disowned it. And that's very interesting. I'm really curious now to read his original script, but it definitely feels like a very Tarantino-esque movie to me. Well, I remember this movie coming out... I did not see it. (laughs) This would have been about the last movie I would have ever seen, like, when I was this age, which would have been about, like, 10 or 11. Oh, yeah. This was a total no-no. No-go zone. But I heard so much about it, and I was trying to think about how that would have been. And when you mentioned Bob Dole and, like, the news and everything, I think that was definitely a factor. I also feel like this was on shows like Entertainment Tonight so much. (laughs) Which we haven't really talked that much about. We've talked a lot about Entertainment Weekly, but... That's true. Honestly, before I was probably actually reading Entertainment Weekly, that's probably where I heard most of the stuff that I heard about movies. Because there was a lot of stuff that I know, that I knew about like early 90s movies that I never actually saw the movies. And so I think part of it was my mom seeing them and telling me about them and since she was a big true crime person, like, I know she saw this movie. I don't even think she probably told me that much about it. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, to me, it just felt like it was the most notorious movie ever. To see it was almost like saying, like, Bloody Mary into the mirror. Like, <laughs> where, like, is it, is it gonna, that. like, get me? Like, is I it gonna turn comparison. me into psycho? That is apt. <laughs> that is a great comparison. And there have been controversial movies before this, obviously, but, like, this is probably the most controversial one from my childhood. Like, this one definitely, like, looms the largest in terms of a bad reputation. Like, it was taboo to see it. It was, like, kind of a statement to go see it. Like, it, it wasn't just, like, a passive movie that you went to. Like, other movies, it was, like, you're either going to see this or you're, like, mm-hmm. definitely not going to see this. Like, it, it, it just felt like a, a choice to see it or not see it. And so I didn't, I mean, at 11, it's not necessarily your choice. But, I, I mean, I don't think I would have really sought this out either. I think Becky showed it to me, uh, (laughs) which is probably true of every single movie that we're talking about today. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure, like, freshman year, like, it was one of those, like, oh, okay, well, now I'm in film school, so, and here's someone who (laughs) is a fan of this film. And Becky's like, come here, little boy, come watch this movie. I didn't know I had such influence on you. (laughs) (laughs) She was my Bloody Mary. Bloody Becky. (laughs) And really, I remember seeing the movie kind of like thinking it was both creative and unpleasant. And really that sense of unpleasantness is what has stuck around ever since then. And it's been a movie that I would never put on casually and be like, oh, like, let's let's watch that. Like, it's always been like, am I going to watch this movie again? Even though I didn't have any specific memories of like a, a particularly graphic image or scene or anything I couldn't think of one thing that had actually turned me off. It was just sort of a, like, ugh, like, It's that not feeling. a casual watch. It's a choice <laughs> to it's put like this It's like Schindler's on. List, like, yes. in a different way. But yeah. You're like, not just doing homework with Schindler's List on in the background. Yeah. Like. You're like, okay, today's the day that we're watching <laughs> Schindler's List. <laughs> Turn out the lights. Get the Kleenex. So, this is my Buffy episode. (laughs) (laughs) Is this it? Okay. The two we're doing on Tarantino. I have so much connection to, like, Tarantino in my youth. As I said earlier in this very episode, he was my idol. I wanted to work at video rental stores. (laughs) Like, I just got so into him so quickly. I saw Pulp Fiction before I saw this. We'll get into that in the next episode. 
But this was one of the first movies I saw when I was 13, and I was just getting into serious movies, dramas, Oscar movies, like controversial movies. So that means I saw it in 1996. It may have been the Tarantino factor of why I wanted to see it, but also it was just very controversial. So everything that you just said about, like, I wanted to see it because of those things. Like, I wasn't scared of that. Or it was like, I was excited by it. I was like, oh, I want to see how I'm going to react to this. I also liked Cheers. (laughs) I did too. Absolutely. And I wanted to see Woody Harrelson. I remember my mom rented this video from this rental store that I would eventually work at when I was 16. And I watched it. And I remember asking my mom, if she saw the movie and what she thought because I wasn't totally sure how I felt about it after my first viewing. Like, I was kind of like, what did I just watch kind of feeling. I don't know when it happened, but soon after, like, this movie just became a regular in my rotation. I had a movie poster of Woody Harrelson, um, like, the poster on my wall of, like, Woody Harrelson and, like, Juliet Lewis is, like, in his red-tinted glasses. That movie poster was on so many walls. <laughs> I want to say I maybe had it on my freshman dorm room. You did. You did. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have photographic evidence of that? Yeah, we need I think to I had it. Pulp Fiction and Ashley Killers. <laughs> That's when I schlepped him with me from New York to California. But I always wanted to dress as Mallory for Halloween, but I never had a Mickey and I never had like her body. So I never was, but the want was there. I loved this movie growing up. I loved the soundtrack. I bought the screenplay. I adored the movie. I watched it regularly in my life up until a certain point. I don't think there was a reason I stopped watching it so often. It was just like, you know, more movies come out and you just get, you get a job and you like, you know, life kind of goes on. So it had been a while since I've sat down and watched it, when I watched it for the podcast, I remembered every line. Like, the movie's in my soul. (laughs) As far as just, like, knowing what's coming next, what they're about to say, how they're going to say it. Like, I know, I know everything, even though I hadn't seen it in, like, over a decade. Please explain to me, where's the purity that you couldn't live without in the 52 people who are no longer on this planet because they met you and Mallory? What's so f***ing pure about that? How do you do it? You'll never understand, Wayne. You and me, we're not even the same species. I used to be you, then I evolved. From where you're standing, you're a man. From where I'm standing, you're an ape. You're not even an ape, you're a media person. Media is like the weather on its man-made weather. Murder? It's pure. You're the one made it impure. You're buying and selling fear. You say, why? Are you done? Great. Then let's cut the BS and get real. Why this purity that you feel about killing? Why for Christ's sake, why? Don't lie to me! I guess, Wayne, you just gotta hold that old shotgun in your hand and it comes clear like it did for me the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that, Mickey? Shit, man. I'm a natural born killer. Let's get into it, guys. What did you think of it now? Well, I watched these movies in, I think, the way that they were meant to be seen by the filmmakers while coughing up blood. Because <laughs> 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 I was sick with pneumonia. Or um, that's what, how the reaction you have watching Yeah, <laughs> and actually, maybe I didn't have pneumonia. Maybe I just watched these movies. <laughs> 
And this one, I was surprised when the credits came on and Tarantino had not written this movie. I, he has a story by credit, but I was under the impression that it was like screenplay by Tarantino, mm-hmm. directed by Oliver Stone. So overall, like this movie, it is a violent movie. It's not an especially like gory movie and it doesn't linger too much on the violence as much as its reputation might suggest. It's really all in, I think, the attitude. So that was kind of surprising just because it has such a reputation as this controversial movie before it came out and it became controversial after it came out for potentially like inspiring people to commit copycat crimes or a lot of killers including like the Columbine shooters like were fans of this film and like would reference it in things that they left behind. So it has that reputation. So I was expecting it to be a little bit more lingering on the the gun violence of it all. And it, I mean, that's definitely in here, but it's not nearly as like explosively bloody as even like most Tarantino movies are. Like, because I watched a lot of his other films as well, and especially like Django Unchained or something. I mean, it's a more of a comic violence there. It's a little bit more heightened, but still like those movies are much bloodier than this one is. This one is really more about the attitude. So, you know, we'll talk more about specifics, but my initial reaction was mostly just surprised that it's more, I think it is, it does feel extreme in its style and its kind of attitude toward the killers and all the other characters, but it doesn't strike me as, as violent as I was expecting. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that, so... (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of forced to agree with you, Chris. Like, I I think, of course, what gets stripped immediately in any social taboo situation or any kind of pop cultural scandal about a movie like this, the first thing that gets stripped out is all the context. And the real context of this movie is that it's very much a satire and a farce. You know, every bit of it is hyper-stylized, way beyond, I would say, the kind of stylized farcical tone of a lot of other Tarantino stuff. Certainly, this movie is way more of a comedy than you're ever used to seeing from Oliver Stone. <laughs> but I think, especially now, re-watching it now, having seen a lot of other Oliver Stone movies, you can really feel where the Oliver Stoneness of it is. The, the movie is very much a structural, layer-by-layer critique of America, what America has been from its founding, and also very much what America was at the end of the 20th century. Uh, very much a critique of the media landscape and of news, like over-sensationalized news. But at the same time, I do think, like we were saying about Reservoir Dogs, this movie glorifies violence and glorifies certain kinds of violence wielded by certain kinds of people in certain kinds of situations. I see this movie now as very much like a fairy tale. And for that reason, and and that kind of hyper-stylized, farcical, almost satirical nature of it, you know, I found the violence like less disturbing in one sense, but also more disturbing too, by virtue of the fact that it is so kind of trivialized. There's a lot of symbolism in this movie that I think does work. There's a lot of it that I think doesn't quite work as well. And I think some things about it certainly feel dated and feel very much of its time. But I think there's a lot of real visual inventiveness in this and a lot of ways that kind of you know, the experience of these characters is mediated through a lot of other pop cultural tropes. And a lot of it is, you know, clearly being shot on video because Robert Downey Jr.'s character is this kind of sensational news reporter 
guy. So a lot of it's being filmed for like the TV cameras. You know, a lot of the characters in this are watching TV and watching movies and referencing movies. So in that way, it really does feel a lot like a Tarantino movie. I love both Woody Harrelson and Juliette Lewis. I I think they're like phenomenal in this movie. To whatever extent this movie stays with me, it's mostly because of them and their performances. And yeah, there are a lot of images I love in this. Like, I love the image of Juliette Lewis smoking in the car. Uh, and like the, she throws a white sash down from a bridge into a canyon, and there's just this long lingering shot of that. I think it also may be the most political Tarantino-related movie. Again, obviously, like knowing now that Oliver Stone rewrote that, I don't know offhand how much of that you can chalk up to Tarantino and how much you can chalk up to Oliver Stone, but I'm guessing Oliver Stone's political bent had a lot more influence than Tarantino maybe intended or had in the original script. Chris, I really do have to agree with you that I think the most disquieting, disturbing thing about this movie is just that overall tone. Um, It is, and I would actually count that as a success of the movie. I think it definitely aims to disquiet you and disturb you. And I certainly think it succeeds wildly at that mission. I think it's one of the most masochistic feeling movies to watch. I got a lot more now why I haven't revisited it so much, because there is such a sense of doom and impending misery, even with this love story. And it's just a very unsettling movie at every single moment of it. And it's very interesting to rewatch it just to see the mechanics of how each different moment is treated in a way that disquiets and disturbs you the most possible. So I loved this movie growing up because it was just unlike anything I had ever seen. Um, And I don't think it was just because I was 13. I think it was because it was like anything that ever come out before. Very postmodern. I always loved how many different styles were used. Like, there's animation, there's film, there's videotape. There's actually 18 different film formats in the movie. And you know what? Like, all these years later, I've still never seen a movie like this. I can't think of another movie that really is just a triumph of disgusting imagery (laughs) the way this movie is. I think it's messy, and it's an experience, and it's captivating, and it's uneven, and it's chaotic, and it feels insane. And I think in that respect, it connects me to the main characters very well. It just feels like a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think it's very interesting watching this as an adult because when I was younger I was just so thrilled watching something that was so different and dared to be different and now I have seen lots of movies but I'm just like in a different place and I can bring some fresh eyes to it and like I was disturbed a lot watching it where I was like I wonder what it would be like being an adult seeing this for the first time like I would be like fucking freaked out I think seeing this in a theater At times, it feels like more like an art piece than an actual movie. It just, it feels like they try to make the most scary movie full of pain. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I, and, and it is very funny sometimes. Like, it is a comedy, but it is a dark comedy. It feels like I shouldn't be watching it. Like, it shouldn't have been released. It feels like I am peeking behind something that I shouldn't see, like the dark web or something. (laughs) Like, that's the feeling I get from it. And in that respect, I feel like it is a success because I think that's what it's going for. Are you in the mood to watch that? <laughs> that depends. <laughs> right. You know? Often, no. <laughs> Definitely, I can't say everyone should watch this movie, but like, I think it is a triumph in that respect. 
I have to say that like I always had a problem with the second half and yet I'm so in love with the first half that it still became one of my favorite movies of all time when I was growing up even though I always felt like as soon as they got into prison it loses steam I still feel that way I agree. like like I'm I so much more into the first 40-ish minutes and then after the snake bite venom like green market scene and shootout it's just kind of dives down for me I guess watching it you know in 20 what year are we in <laughs> 20 none of us know 2029 <laughs> you know what like my husband after i watched it said so did it hold up and i was like i don't know if it did because it actually feels very of its moment it doesn't really hold up with how media works today it doesn't feel exactly like what the media conversation is now with like social media and just like how we're the product and kind of that whole aspect of the media like so much today has to do with phones and misinformation versus like glamorizing bad people i mean i feel like some of that is still here but it just didn't feel like super relevant oh i i don't know i i feel like that made it feel more relevant really? to me yeah just the total total saturation of of media in every single aspect of public life if anything this movie's a bit ahead of the curve because like now i think the only real difference would be that a bonnie and clyde type of tragic love story like this would be like in and out of the headlines in a day okay the yeah. acceleration of that kind of media cycle i think would be the biggest tangible difference but in terms of like you know then becoming public figures and like people identifying with them i feel like they would only get a bigger audience now and the, the twisted moral logic of their internal universe would spread to more people in a circumstance like, you know, like we're living in now. I think I'm a little more with Becky on this in the sense that, like, it feels very distinctly 90s. Just, I mean, formalistically, it especially feels very 90s because it's definitely capitalizing on, like, nightly news or those, like, news magazine programs, tabloid, you know, even talk show kind of stuff. There's a device where, like, sometimes editing is just, like, changing channels, and it feels very much like this kind of more passive viewing experience that we used to have, whereas now we more seek out, you know, things to watch, and we're more in control of what we watch versus, like, just kind of flipping channels through whatever's on, and kind of, I feel like it has that sense of being, like, bombarded with different images that don't necessarily go together, like flipping channels, flipping past something and like, oh, there's a very violent image, like, and, and, and seeing it out of context the way that you do, like, when you're flipping channels. So I still think it's relevant today, but this also came out before Columbine, you know, five years before Columbine, and then obviously before, like, mass shootings became such a thing. Obviously, there were mass shootings before this. It, this is, you know, speaking to incidents that had happened happened before this but like it, it still seemed sensational i guess at the time that this movie came out and now it uh, sadly is not that sensational like you can almost like be like oh that happened oh okay like you you don't have the same reaction that you used to where it was like how could something like this happen i'm like so we're too shocked. jaded now yeah now it's like oh of course someone you know did this like someone does this every week or every month or whatever you know so the movie's attitude is very jaded about these killings like we see a lot of the killings but they're shot in a very kind of passive way, almost in a comedic way, where it's like we never really empathize with the victims. I think the one possible exception is the guy in the pharmacy, because you're with him for like a couple minutes before Mickey catches up with him and ends up killing him. And you do kind of see his fear and him sort of trying to negotiate his way out of this. And also the Native American guy on the reservation. Oh yeah, him too. 
Mm, yeah that was that was less we're gonna murder you and it was more like the drug trip kind of like mistake the movie really takes an attitude that is very i think like mickey and mallory's would be which is they don't see these people as human beings they don't really empathize with them which is kind of what you have to do to to be a mass killer is not see people as humans and 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 just kind of see them as you know marks or just obstacles in your way and so the movie takes that attitude but i think in the media at the time everything was a sensation and a surprise and like an, a months long like these stories would be in the headlines for months versus you know like you say today like it's like over and done in like a couple of days and so yeah like today i think it would just be that sense that this is like a big thing that everyone is paying attention attention to because they have all these shots of like kids are worshiping mickey and mallory and like it's like the whole nation is caught up in the story which happens very much but it happens like today and then it's done tomorrow and then there's a new story tomorrow so that sense of like this being an ongoing thing i guess just feels very specifically 90s Yeah, and I would also say in parallel with what you're saying that the barbarity and horror of Tom Sizemore's cop character, I mean, it's still shocking and horrifying, but it's less shocking as a concept now. That's behavior I do kind of expect from police of that kind, you know, who become singularly obsessed. Yeah, we should, I I think, set that up for people who maybe haven't seen this movie or seen it in a while, which is that Tom Sizemore is the cop who's after them, and in one scene that's very disconnected from the rest of the movie, he has a prostitute come to his hotel room and just kind of casually strangles her, like he's playing that he's going to, and then she's kind of freaked out, and then they get back into it, and then he really does strangle her. And it's not nothing, like happens plot wise like we never learn like how did he like get away like what did he do with the body any of that like and it doesn't really have anything to do with the movie i think it's really just kind of equating this cop character with killers in a way that was yeah i think a little fresher at the time now we are (laughs) in a pretty critical (laughs) examination of police these days where i think a lot of movies and, and tv are you know question the police now in a way that has always been done but i think was a little fresher in 1994 I want to talk about the casting. Woody Harrelson in this movie is just so spooky, and he's like a horror villain (laughs) in this movie. And I always kind of thought Juliette Lewis was Mallory in real life. (laughs) Like, like she does a very convincing job, because I'm just like, is she kind of like that in real life? (laughs) It's very good acting. Yeah, I agree. I think they're both perfectly cast and very convincing. The world's coming to an end, Mal. Angels, Mickey. They're coming down for us from heaven. And I see you riding a big red horse. And you're driving the horses, whipping them. And they're spitting and frothing all on the mound. And they're coming right at us. And I see the future. There's no death. Because you and I were angels. And with both the writing and their performances, they are loony. (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
but they're in love too. They are in I, love. I buy but... their chemistry. Oh, I totally buy their chemistry. <laughs> I buy their chemistry because they're the only two people who could possibly be together. <laughs> yes. With. Like they would not like go on a date with Mallory, anyone else. You're like, uh, sorry, no. I think I mentioned this in another episode when we were talking about songs. There's a <laughs> there's a scene where he's in jail and she's visiting and she's drinking him off under the table and a beautiful Bob Dylan love song is playing and I would cry because I'm like, I want love like that. <laughs> I want conjugal love. <laughs> I would always be like, they're so in love, why can't I have love like that? <laughs> to me, like, to me, this movie is not, like, romantic and, I, like, their love just seems, like, insane to me, which, I mean, I think it's supposed to, but, like, I'm not, like, swept up in it like that. <laughs> I don't know about now, but back then, certainly. <laughs> For me, it was a positive surprise in this. The fact that their love is clearly only rooted in their traumas that they've experienced. Like, they are bonded by their trauma, and they are playing it out repeatedly, like, with each other. And, like, that's why they find love with each other. It's just they're, at that point in their lives, just trauma to the point that it's, you know, kind of irretrievable, at least in the circumstances that they're in. And I feel like most other movies about fated love and star-crossed lovers like that make it about a more mystical thing, you know, and something that's more ineffable and indefinable for them. But in this movie, it really is, you know, like the circumstance of their fucked up lives that brought them together. And for that, it makes it a lot more believable. And to me, it made it more disturbing. I like that the movie has, like, there's the whole Mallory sequence. I love Mallory, which we'll talk about. But I just like that we do see moments of this trauma, like we see a flashback of like Mickey as a, a little boy and I don't even think we see anything we just see his reaction and hear uh, like parents fighting or stuff falling and let's yeah. drill on that though because that's the moment when he when he and Mallory escaped to the Native American reservation yeah okay. they're tripping as they're like driving along and they you know like basically to get away from the cops and hide out they go on to a Native American reservation and go into this this Native American guy's house. And they're still tripping, but then the Native American man shows them, like, it shows them the kind of honorifics of their relative who died fighting for the U.S. in a war, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really interesting moment, because it seems to actually, like, get through, at least to Mallory's character, in a way that I think the humanity of people doesn't really get through to them in other parts of this story. And then the Native American guy is, like, doing, like, a kind of smoke ceremony thing and that's when mickey is flashing back to his childhood and in i exactly as you said like i thought that was really affecting because you don't see the traumatic things happening you just see him as a little boy and you see his face and it's like it's you're seeing some moment that's clearly like breaking his mind yeah, and you don't have to honestly know, you know, it, it just like this little boy is just broken um, and he grew up to be this. <laughs> and it's the horror of seeing himself and seeing his own past come back to him that Mickey then shoots and kills the Native American guy. That was a moment that really stuck out to me because at one point in that scene, Mickey's asking Mallory, like, are there demons around us? And Mallory's like, uh, we're the demons here. I actually hate that scene. Um, <laughs> really? I think it kind of ruins the movie for me, or at least hmm. comes close to it, because they're so remorseless in the rest of the movie. And then it just seems like they're completely different characters when they get there. And this is one of the scenes that Tarantino hates. I did some research. <laughs> um, he did not write this scene. Um, his his screenplay basically is like framed by the whole 
like they're already in prison basically for the whole screenplay. And so that sequence is just elongated and then you see, you know, kind of flashbacks later. But this scene is not in any way in that screenplay, I don't think. And I really don't like the idea that they could suddenly be empathizing with people because I, I feel like that's the whole point of their characters is that they don't. And that there, it's really just the two of them. And so to have this moment where, like, I think Mallory, she almost feels like bad for his son having, you know, been killed. And then she's mad at Mickey for killing him. I just, it felt like really out of character for me. And it was like, they're mass murderers. I really don't feel that just because, like, this one guy was, like, nice to them. Like, anyone could be nice to them. I think it's because they were helpless at the time. Like, they were lost. They were tripping. Like, they needed help. And this person was nice to them. So I I think they yeah. were out of sorts. They weren't their usual selves. Right. And so that scene doesn't bother me. I understand what you're saying, but to me, it's because they were in a different frame of mind and a different situation where they needed help. And this person was nice and they didn't mean to kill him. And there is some remorse. And earlier in the movie, like she doesn't kill her little brother. She's just like, you're free, Kevin. And it shows that she does have some heart in there. She's fucked up beyond recognition, but like there is something in there that they're not just robots. And I think they're at two slightly different places as people. Clearly, Mickey's killed before. But I don't know if the movie makes clear whether or not Mallory's ever killed anyone before she kills her own father. No, I don't think she has. I doubt it. Yeah. So, like, I think in that way, there's a bit of distance between them. But I also think, to me, the the moment where he's tripping and he sees himself... I think that is specifically the moment at which he chooses and decides that he can't empathize with anyone because he's not going to even empathize with himself. Like, he refuses that offer from the universe of, like, being able to connect with his pain and actually establish empathy. So I don't think it's an exception in the way that you took it. I think it's a moment of decision for him as a character, you know, that kind of defines the rest of the course of his life. Yeah, I mean, to me, the whole Native American thing, and just, it it relied on a lot of cliches of, like, the Native American being, like, wiser and and, and mystic, you know, which... True. And just didn't really belong in this movie to me, or with these characters, and then I can imagine a version of it that would work better, but the way that she's so horrified that he killed this person, and then afterwards, like, they're attacked by snakes in this kind of surreal feel, like, it feels like this kind of fatalistic thing about, like, they're being now punished for having, like, killed this sort of mystic person, and to me, like, that just goes against what I see this movie is about, is sort of, like, the evils of human nature and that there is no fate or destiny, and it's all just kind of nihilistic. And and to me, this kind of brought mystic in, in a way that, like, clashes a lot with nihilism. Well, but then he also talks about fate, or they both also talk about fate near the end, you know, because there's... You know, when they're in jail, there's a riot that ends up being the the reason that they are able to break out, but they didn't have anything to do with the riot, and they see that as a moment of fate. Right, which, when you listen to, like, real serial killers talk, they are talking about God and fate and love in these big, grandiose terms that actually have very little to do with what those things are really about, which is most religious people or are supposed to be compassionate, you know, and love each other. Like, love is about, you know, feeling empathy towards someone else. And, you know, that's obviously not what serial killers are doing. So they think they're feeling these things and connected to these, like, really high ideas, but they're not. They're just nuts, basically. Or, you know, maybe that's a little too dismissive, but they're these very grandiose ideas of themselves and 
and their place in the world versus everyone else. And so I like it better if they're the only ones having these ideas and there isn't this like external character who also is kind of like validating that point of view. Like I find it a lot more powerful if it's just them being kind of delusional about it. I get what you mean. And and I definitely thought the snake moment was closer to silliness than most of the rest of the movie. But then again, by that point, I had very firmly like lodged in my mind the idea that this was a fairy tale. And so like to me, that just kind of worked in a fairy tale logic kind of way where you're like, okay, well now you're beset by snakes. Deal with it. I think we should talk about Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> I think we absolutely need to talk about Rodney Playing Dangerfield. <laughs> Did he get some respect for this movie? We need to talk about Rodney Dangerfield, I think is... <laughs> the prequel that we need to talk about, Kevin? He was allowed by Stone to rewrite all of his characters' lines. <laughs> so, that was all Rodney Dangerfield. Hi, Dad. How is work? What work? I'm unemployed. Where the f*** have you been, huh? Well, you look nice, Mallory. Yuck, you look like... <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Well, I'm gonna go now. I'll be back at midnight, okay? What are you wearing? A broomstick and a trash bag? Why don't you put some meat on you, huh? A few pounds lighter, you'll be missing the opium. <laughs> what the hell do you think you're going, huh? I'm going to the John Lee Hooker concert with Donna. I told you that yesterday. First off, you don't tell me anything. You ask my permission. Second, you're not going out in that Hoover House dress. You'll end up peddling your ass, you stupid bitch. And third, you're not going out at all. You didn't mow the yard. That piece of shit lawnmower is fine! That's the way you talk in front of your mother? You stupid bitch. You watch your language. Or I'll kick the shit out of you. In this crazy movie full of crazy things, this is the sequence that so many people pinpoint as the craziest or the most upsetting or the most, you know, controversial. And I can't say they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was the most memorable to me, I think in part because I know that you pointed it out like when we first watched this movie as like one of your, I think, favorite sequences. <laughs> but it was really the only thing I feel like I've concretely remembered from having watched this, you know, 15 years ago. It is memorable for, for those who don't remember or haven't seen it. It is a sequence where we flash back to where Mickey and Mallory met, but it is presented in the style of a three-camera sitcom called I Love Mallory, and it is way over the top. Think of Married with Children, but times all your nightmares. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield is the dad and he is just disgusting and like a wife beater and he's like groping Mallory and clearly like we're to infer that that he's you know molested her quite a few times and this is her home life and her mom does nothing. Oh it's even implied that her quote-unquote oh, younger brother yes. was her child. Yeah it's not even implied they, they literally say that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Track. yeah yeah and there's a laugh track and um you know and then eventually Mickey comes in and he's like the, the butcher um, and he sees Mallory and it, it is love at first sight. And eventually they kill her dad and, and then set her mom on fire for doing nothing. A little harsh. Yeah, it is. Um, it is quite the scene. It is especially at the time. I can't think that anybody has seen something quite so dark. Well, and I, I wouldn't say that it's anything like Married with Children. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, don't mean to like argue that, but I, I think the tone of it is closer to like the Honeymooners. Like, it's, it's like a <laughs> yeah, okay. happy, happy-go-lucky, giggly, upbeat sitcom tone. Sure. I Which just is mean, like, that's why it's yeah. so disturbing. But it's, I also felt like it was like Married with Children just because it's so, it feels sleazy yeah. in a way that that show kind of does. Like, and it's just depicting like that kind of class of people who are not super classy. Yeah. 
I mean, it's married of children. Like it makes married of children look like Donna Reed, you know, like, um, it is, it is something, man. It is the, it is the performance of Rodney Dangerfield of a lifetime. I think like just, just, he went there, man. Like he was just like, fuck it. I'm going to be this disgusting nightmare villain character it just stands out in a movie full of craziness well yeah and i mean it's it's clearly very much intentional that they cast two comedians in rodney dangerfield and Edie mcclurg but i also just think they they absolutely knock it out of the park and i i even really took note of Edie mcclurg's performance and the the way that she's a presence who's notable for her absence in mallory's life and the the absence of any kind of intervention or fighting back or anything yeah it was absolutely the most extremely fucked up thing about this movie to me. Scenes, those moments stood out very much even now. I also think it stands out a lot because it feels so true. I mean, A, because this is the kind of background that a lot of people who end up killing people have is that they're, like, it starts with some kind of abuse in their childhood. So that part feels true. And it's also true that a lot of killers start with their parents. Uh, Like, Charles Starkweather this is very similar to what happened there with where he and and his girlfriend, she maybe allegedly was not involved or was involved, we're not really sure, but it was one of the inspirations for these characters. But it happens a lot, you know, that they, you know, start with, in many cases, like the people who have abused them or that they at least perceive as being responsible for whatever's wrong with them. So to have that, you know, be so true, but also in such a stylized way, I think like you could almost pull that out of this movie and make it like a little mini movie that would, like it is, it's very disturbing, just the juxtaposition of this like happy family sitcom with the fact that it's so dark but also so true of of these situations we haven't really talked about robert downey jr in this movie he plays an australian man (sighs) and we can begin there (laughs) and that was not in uh the script at all either either script he just wanted to make him australian yeah was that Oliver Stone or was that Downey Jr.? Downey Jr. wanted to make him Australian. That feels like a Downey Jr. idea. That feels and I th- very much think like that was a wrong choice. Because it's not then about America? Yeah, I mean, he can still, like, have moved to America and, like, he's working for the American media, but I think it would have been a lot stronger to just have him be Geraldo, basically, who is, I think he was actually... Yeah, that's who was based off of, was Geraldo. Yeah, like, have him be exactly like a Geraldo. Because, like, this is a movie that has so many ideas in its style and what it's about. is like, it doesn't need, like, actors to have ideas like that, too, like, and, like, take it in a new... Like, it doesn't need a new Mm -hmm. interesting direction to go in. The movie's already, like, the interesting weirdness, and, like, you just kind of have to play it, not exactly straight, because that's not how this movie is. But honestly, like, the less you bring to it as an actor in that way of, like, being over the top, I think it would be better. This character could have been, like, really, like, solemn and straight-faced, and I think that would have made the point a lot stronger, that he eventually ends up becoming almost as savage as they are. That hits it exactly, as I think the turn of that character would have been both more, like, believable, but also funnier if he went in, like, super serious and went in trying to do a real journalistic job. Yeah, I just... I also just think the accent is very bad <laughs> and it like occasionally dips out and it's it just it's one of the few things that is powerful enough to knock me out of the moment in the movie that takes some effort well, it's it's like an actor's vanity, too, which is like Mickey and Mallory are like the larger than life figures in this. And yes. so it's like they need to be the stars and the ones who stand out. And if you have someone else who's like all of a sudden you 
insert crocodile Dundee in this movie. It's just like, that's too much. Like, we need our focus to be over here on the killers. Yeah, I just, I love the parts I love so much that it makes up for the parts I don't love. And I'm not into Tom Sizemore's character. I'm not into Robert Downey Jr. Not into Tommy Lee Jones. It's a significant chunk of the movie. You mean Two-Face? <laughs> <laughs> he's basically playing, like, Two-Face. Yeah, in pretty much he, is. He's, like, as big as Robert Downey Jr. is, like... Tommy Lee Jones is bigger. Like he is. No, he is. He's going. He's swinging for the fences in this one. Like I just, I just kind of like my eyes glaze over <laughs> with those parts. I'm just not as interested. And and I have to say, like I've read Tarantino's original. Um, the opening sequence is exactly the same. Even the bullet that's going bullet POV, like he uh-huh. put that in the screenplay. I adore that opening sequence so much but most of his script is mostly Wayne Gale and Mickey and Mallory are definitely like supporting and I think that's wrong and I and I think that Oliver Stone is right to have made them um, I agree the the main people in this movie because I think the movie loses steam whenever they're not on screen I absolutely agree I mostly agree. I mean, Tarantino wrote the script again, trying to make something cheaper. So he had a lot of sequences like purposefully filmed on like different kinds of video stock. So it would be, he could shoot on video and it would be cheaper. So in that way, it makes sense. Um, Because like, I think a lot of like stuff was supposed to be black and white, not in the way that Oliver Stone does it, where it's like the same scene as black and white, but like it would be like, an interview scene is like all in black and white and then other parts are in color. I like the kind of framework that they're starting in prison and like it and it's just kind of like this straightforward like this feels like two movies kind of and that one is much more cohesive but I do think yeah there's something missing from the Tarantino script that just it feels a little too Tarantino and like poppy and fun and referential in a way that like, I'm not sure this story is like, I don't really want to see this kind of story in a totally Tarantino style. I think this does need a little bit more of Oliver Stone's kind of like thinking about things in a larger context, which is in a way like Stone and Tarantino are very opposite. Like, Oliver Stone is always thinking, like, in these huge, like, historical, like, what does this mean for the history of America? And Tarantino is in this, like, little box, like, only thinking about, like, here's the movies I'm referencing. And I don't think he has, like, a lot of big ideas, you know, in that way. I don't think he's often thinking of things, like, in a more historical context, even though his movies often reflect those contexts. But he's usually doing that as a pastiche of other movies versus, like, really speaking to history. Do you guys remember Adbusters? Do you remember that magazine? No. It could be a thing that would be interesting to cover on the podcast. I don't know if it could be its own episode, but it was a political magazine that was really big in the 90s. And I just, this movie kept reminding me of it, just in the ways that it really hammers all of its jokes, like, right on the nose. Like, it's not beating around the bush in any particular way. And it's a very particular and, to me, very... 90s specifically kind of political comedy um and yeah this just it this reminded me of that like especially when you know in the in the middle of a scene or at the end of a scene they would like cut to a coca-cola commercial where you know with the polar the cgi polar bears it was such (laughs) a omnipresent thing in the 90s oh i've got a a bit of trivia for you coca-cola approved the use of that polar bear to be in the movie but they didn't really know what the movie was about 
So when the board of directors saw the finished movie, they were not happy, <laughs> but they yeah. already given uh, approval. It reminded me of that because it's not that I would argue that political satire in film is that evolved now. I just think most filmmakers don't attempt it at all. It's hard when life <laughs> is the satire of right. at this point. Right, but it was it was it reminded me very much of the tone of that magazine because everything was so over the top and like everything was so hitting the point with a hammer that it kind of dared you to either laugh or take offense, you know? And I feel like a lot of humor in the nineties was very much with that came very much came with that kind of attitude where it was like daring you to, to either laugh at it or like really wanting you to kind of take offense to it. Mm, That's about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it it was, it was really interesting to like have that mental comparison because it really does feel like this movie is doing that. Like, I, I think overall it's a very successful movie and I think in a lot of ways it's messiness is advantageous for that. I'm kind of of two minds about that is, is I think it's a little over stylized in a way that feels like assaultive which I know is the intent because it's meant to be an in-your-face movie the way that it switches between different kinds of film and often like you know you're seeing a shot in black and white and this and then you're cutting away to that and you're never allowed to get like lost in the moment of the scene like you're never kind of allowed to just be like oh this is actually happening like you're constantly reminded that you're watching media even more than watching a movie it feels like watching media in general and I think think that gets the point across but also makes it so exhausting and is especially in the last half like so blunt that I'm not sure that it was the best choice like if this movie were done in a straightforward way where you actually believed these characters and this situation was happening I think it would be the scariest movie ever <laughs> because the char- these characters are so scary the situation is so scary if you're a, on a TV crew and suddenly horrible killers like get loose and you're you know with them in this prison I mean there's something about the end of this movie that feels like Apocalypse Now where just everyone is going mad and it's effective in that way but it also is just like everyone in this movie is so vile like you've got Mickey and Mallory and they're obviously vile in a way but then you meet Tom Sizemore who strangles a prostitute and is just naturally vile (laughs) Robert Downey Jr. is this like really like sensational like will do anything for ratings doesn't really care about people Tommy Lee Jones is a cartoon character I'm surprised (laughs) there isn't like steam like coming out of his head in the movie oh and he's like he's even more eager to whore out the prisoners for tv coverage than robert downey jr is at first yeah and so you end up like almost like sympathizing with Mickey and Mallory or like thinking like, oh, like I want I really want to see them kill Tommy Lee Jones or kill Tom Sizemore because they are so vile that like, yeah, that makes a point about the media and and cops. But I don't know that that point is all that interesting, like enough to sustain the entire movie. And I think there could have been more like I, I feel like there's so much here that I, I'm a little disappointed in just kind of how flat especially the second half of the movie feels yeah i would agree with you on that like i think where it lands is a place that makes it feel much more 90s and much more of that time like i was saying about like the adbusters magazine like it's it's almost like it's more commenting on like this is where we are now and not really about like this is why it's bad that we have prisons. This is why police don't actually solve crimes. And it has all those things on its mind, but I, I would agree that it doesn't really know how to how to land those things as as like critique or commentary outside of just the two of these people. 
So this movie has an alternate ending that got filmed but was not released in any version. They meet somebody in the prison, which is in the real movie, kind of like a guardian angel kind of guy who like leads them out. And in the movie that you know and love, they shoot Robert Downey Jr. They leave his camera as the person that witnesses the crime. And in the alternate ending, they go off with the guy in their van and the, that guy ends up shooting Mickey and Mallory. I do not think that is a good ending. I hated it. You hated can it. see it on YouTube or on the Blu-ray. It is not a good ending. I'm glad that they did not eventually go with that. It does have a dreary ending where basically the last thing you see is Robert Downey Jr. dying and them walking off and they get away with it. They get away with everything. To me, it's the only ending that makes sense because for them to not have comeuppance of any way because they're not real people. They're a metaphor. Right. (laughs) And they can't die. (laughs) Like, they just go on. And for me, I feel like it's a good ending that they got away and they didn't have any sort of comeuppance because there is no comeuppance. The story isn't ultimately about them. It's about how we view people like them and, and our reactions to that. Yeah, it's presenting them as the legend, not the fact. And so to leave that legend open-ended, I think, yeah, is the only way. Like, if they were to die, it's like, oh, well, they find, yeah, they got their comeuppance. Like, they got what they deserved. Like, that's not how things really work, you know? And like you were saying, I think, earlier, I wrote, this feels more like a piece of art than it does a movie. Like, I almost wish that it could only be seen, like, in a gallery (laughs) setting. Like, you had to go to it, like, ready to discuss and engage with with it because it, it there is something kind of icky thinking about it as passive viewing especially for people who aren't gonna like actually process what they're seeing to add to that point i think a lot of people who love this movie see mickey and mallory as anti-heroes and as like worthy of if not emulation then at least like adoration yeah i mean like a lot of pop culture like people take the wrong lesson mm-hmm. out of it like yeah. it's trying to critique this what do you guys think about like the fact that this has inspired a bunch of copycat crimes or at least has been cited. Right. I don't think inspired is the right word. They were not inspired by them. I loved this movie. I'm not a serial killer. Oh, you're not? But if I get a speeding ticket, are you going to blame this movie? (laughs) You know, like they're not related. Yeah. Like I'm sure those people that were, you know, that liked this movie and then did bad stuff also may have liked things like Shel Silverstein books. (laughs) You know, like why aren't you blaming Shel Silverstein? (laughs) Just like it's they're just picking and choosing things. So for me, it doesn't matter. Like if you're going to kill somebody, you're going to kill somebody, whether you even saw this movie or not. Yeah. I mean, it's I I think that's a subject about which we could do endless numbers of episodes um, because, you know, it's like in our childhood came all of these kind of moral panics around particular pieces of media. Yeah. And I agree with Becky that to blame a specific piece of media for a specific public event of horror is like missing the point. At the same time, it definitely made an impression on me watching it this time around the the way that this movie does glorify violence and does show it as, you know, these people's only solution to their to their particular challenges in life. Chris, I agree with your point that like this movie I think would be served if we had a more sophisticated kind of cultural conversation around not just this movie but all different kinds of movies and all different kinds of you know, tropes of storytelling that get repeated across every form of media and every form of storytelling. But I think it's very silly, you know, especially when we now live in a world that is full of public horrors that take leaps and bounds beyond the imagination and horror of any particular movie. You know, it's like the the 
horrifying things that happen in the real world are like exponentially more horrifying and have exponentially higher body counts than anything in any of these movies. I understand the context in which these things become scandalous, especially when we have a media culture that profits from scandal. And in the 2022 context, like the, a media environment that profits from anything that gets people clicking. But I don't think that the kind of fairy taleish violence or stories of love in this are the kinds of things that actually inspire violence. Because again, Chris, exactly as you said earlier, like people who actually do go on serial killing rampages are disconnected from any kind of shared observable reality that we have. There aren't, you know, one-to-one connections between the media that, you know, people who go on to do violent things watch and what they end up doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably more likely that people who are thinking about going on a killing spree are drawn to this movie than this movie then inspires them to do that. You know, it's like they're going to look for themselves in media and this is where they find it. I would be lying if I say that this movie doesn't make me uncomfortable at all or none of those, you know, I read some of the summaries of things and mostly I don't think that this movie inspired, you know, any of those or if like this movie didn't exist that those things wouldn't happen. But like it is an unpleasant movie in a lot of ways and it is disturbing in the sense that the movie itself is not acting like these things are disturbing which makes it more disturbing like there's cartoon sounds under some of the scenes you know it's and it's like showing them having fun killing and making it look fun but i guess like ultimately i think there is a lot you know to discuss in this movie and to wrestle with and it obviously is making critiques and observations in a way that a lot of violent media is not and i think it's because this movie is challenging that this is the movie that kind of people single out as the one, whereas I think something that doesn't have anything to discuss at all, but is as violent as this, which describes a lot of movies, is probably the more problematic thing than than this. I think a lot of the times violent movies that aren't controversial are just violent, but they're dramas, and you're supposed to like, oh no, somebody died, or oh no, war, you know? Um, but and this- their characters are like, undeniably heroic. Yeah, and the, yeah. And the villains are undeniably the yes. bad guys um but this has a sense of humor that makes people uncomfortable yeah and i think becky like you were talking about the ways that this movie successfully pulls you into the point of view of the killers i think that in and of itself is like a commentary on that like i i think that's one way in which the kind of structure of the movie is going against the idea that you're supposed to like idolize these people because i think we're all supposed to feel discomfort at the times that we're connect most connected to these people's point of view yeah and there is so much media about killing and most of what we see is like the killer is brilliant and has this elaborate plan like seven or silence of the lambs or even you know basic instinct like where they're very glamorous in that in a, more of a hollywood kind of way but like it is refreshing to see a movie where they're i mean it is kind of glamorized but in this kind of trashy way and that feels a lot more true to the like things that i've read about serial killers and how they think that you know they're just kind of like these like narcissists often very delusional people and they're not brilliant or premeditated like it's all just kind of this random chaos and that's scarier because it's more unpredictable like you you can't 
like these characters are more animalistic and and behaving on instinct and that's not something you can like solve the crime or like figure out who they're gonna target next like it's all random and it's just like chaos and i think that that's why this movie is more disturbing is because it's actually much truer to like how most crimes take place which is in you know much more much less thought out and much more chaotic and just kind of impulsive I think you put that really well, and it brings to mind, for me, like my last note about this, I appreciated the ways that they intercut things with shots of nature, and how like the very beginning of this movie cuts to all this imagery of like Western desert and mountains and wild animals. And it was like a wolf, a snake, and a hawk. And I was like, oh, those are all predators. Mm-hmm. So Chris, yeah, that called all of that imagery to mind for me, and I think that was, again, one of the ways in which this movie's excesses are really successful and really do complicate any easy explanation or any easy alliance you would have with these characters because at the end of the day they are just acting out the things that have become their only impulses so guys that was exhausting (laughs) that movie (laughs) i'm ready for a cold delicious (laughs) coca-cola is that the noise the bear makes i'm ready for a snake bite That will conclude our discussion on Natural Born Killers, a title that I've always really liked. I think it's It's a great title. title. It's a great title, yeah. Next time, we're going to be talking about uh, Quentin Tarantino's other 1994 violence-filled... Romp. Romp. (laughs) Romp. It's a romp. (laughs) Pulp Fiction. You may have heard of it. Take it away, Seth. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever else you get your fine podcast products. And donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so we can bring you more episodes entirely for free. I've been Seth Pearson. I'm Chris. And shit, man, I'm a natural-born killer. I did not say it as good as Woody Harrelson. No. <laughs> you don't think you're as good of an actor as Woody Harrelson? Your Woody is not as good as your Quentin. I'll just put it that way. Here's the thing. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yes, I'm stuck